everybody. My name's Kim. I'm the worship pastor here. Most of you know me from that spot over there. Now you get to see me from this spot over here. God help us all. So in my seven years of being worship pastor at this church, this is only the second time I've been given the opportunity to, uh, you know, sit in this spot. Okay, maybe it's the second time I've taken the opportunity. So, house is in Hawaii with Wendy, having a ball of a time. Not jealous at all. I'm going to work on that. So, um, he sent out a thing, like, early June. He was going to be gone these dates. Needed people to cover. And uh, Tamara jumps in and says, well, I'll take these two dates. And so I'm like, well, I'm technically a pastor here, so I should probably share the workload, right? Not make Tamara do it all? Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll take the third one. And then I went and looked at the sermon preaching schedule and saw that we're talking about abandoned ideology. Thanks, Tamara. Love you too, sister. So we're, we're on this uh, Beyond Order series. Okay. I just can't sit and talk. Sorry about the camera angle. I'm just too ADD and too needing to move. I'll try and stay in this spot for those of you watching online so I don't get cut off by the screen. Anyways, we're using the um, Jordan Peterson's Brain and Bible 2.0 to kind of supplement and, you know, help us with um, some teaching topics this this series. Um, And so today, like I said, is abandoned ideology. And um, my first thought beyond, thanks Tamara, was um, what is ideology? (laughs) Yeah, I I graduated high school, did a few uh, units of college, but yeah, I don't know what that meant. But it seemed intimidating. So for those of you who know Beyond I do, what ideology is and all that stuff, go ahead and check out for about five minutes and the rest of us will kind of dive in and see, you know, what this is that we're talking about today. So I started off with what the heck is ideology? What does that mean? And oddly enough, I found that over the last 300 years, um, the definition has changed. It's not a static thing. Um, So in the 17 to 1800s, it was thought of as the science of ideas, which I really like that. Uh, The philosophy of the mind, which derives its knowledge from the senses. As a kinesthetic learner, I can get on board with this, right? It's about experiencing the things around you. It's experiencing the world and developing a philosophy off of that, right? Based on what you see, what you feel, what you hear, all that. I like that. I understood that. Then, in about the early 1900s, it turned into more of a systematic set of ideas. So less something you experience and get to create yourself, but a set of rules or a set of ideas of what... um, My background changed. Anyways. I'm a little ADD sometimes. All the time. So, 1900s became more of a a blanket system of ideas, depending on what you believe, a doctrine 
through which the world is interpreted. So I was less on board with that, but hey, whatever. It is what it is. And now we have a modern definition, which kind of blends the two, but not really, um, goes into a collection of ideas that's shared, uh, ideas or beliefs that's shared by a specific group of people. Um, it still feels very doctriny, not just ideas, not just philosophies. So that's where we stand. You can choose it to mean what you want it to mean. I identify more as the old school go figure of science and ideas and that experiential um, part of the definition. So now that we know what it is, there's two main types in the world today. Not my slides are showing up. Anyways. Oh, that's fun. Enjoy that. So, anyways, there's two main types of philosophy nowadays. Philosophy. Ideology. That's what we're talking about today. We have secular or political ideologies, um, which are like ethical ideas of how countries and governments should be formed um, and run. And then we have epistemological ideologies. Yeah, say that ten times fast. It literally took me five minutes to sound it out and figure out how to pronounce that word. Um, so our epistemological ideologies are uh, sets of ideas about philosophy, the universe, religion, um, and how people make decisions. Um, going forward, we're just going to call that a religious ideology, so I don't have to keep saying epistemological. If you're okay with that, great. If you're not, oh well. So, we have religious ideologies. Um, they're less harmful than your secular ideologies, although how many wars have been fought over, you know, religion and people's views of it? Um, but those are more products of extreme fundamentalists. Your every group has them, your Muslims, Christians, Jews. Um, but they're less dangerous um, in the fact that they can acknowledge that there's a higher, there's a God that knows more than we do, right? We don't have all the answers. That's one thing about faith and religion is that we know we aren't the tip of the spear. There's one who's greater than us that goes before us. Now, with secular ideologies, they're godless, right? There's nobody higher than whoever the leader of that ideology is at the time. There's nobody to tame their power. They are the height of what they believe. Look, it's uh, Waco. You know, he was the leader of that cult. He was the tip of the spear. There was no beyond because he was interpreting for God. Over 100 million people were killed in the 1900s by idealistic, or, yeah, idealistic dictators. We have Mao, Stalin, and Hitler, the three biggest players. Um, they didn't have a higher power. They were and spoke for and were the direct height of what they believed. Uh, these ideologies are largely concentrated with how to allocate power. Um, they identify 
usually based on their position within the political spectrum. And they're very two-dimensional. They have goals and methods of which to achieve those goals. There's not much wiggle room besides that. There's one reason why they're there, and this is how we're going to get to that reason. And then you have the extreme ideologies of the isms, socialism, liberalism, conservatism. Um, and these are very dangerous because they can turn into idolatry very quickly. If you're not conscious and aware of somebody greater than your, who you're following, that person takes the place of anything else. And we all know what the Bible says, idols, right? Yeah? Uh, both Genesis 20, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 5, 8 say very cleanly, very plainly, do not make idols of any kind. Zero, zip, none, yet. Like any good parent, God repeats himself very clearly for a second time within the first five books of the Bible. I'm thinking that's probably important. At least it was when mom would repeat herself. Just as an idol can be an oversimplified version of a, good, of a god in physical form, ideology can become an oversimplified version of life, which is a very complex thing. Not just life, but your beliefs as well. Whatever your ideology is, nothing is based plainly, right? We are complex beings living in a complex world. There's a very fine line that runs between radical ideologies and conspiracy theories. The problem with conspiracy theories is that, by definition, they cannot be proven. So, it seems like modern-day secular and political ideologies are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one, and none of them seem to be the same, right? All secular ideologies, all ideologies, period, tend to follow the same recipe, okay? We have, you start with your oversimplified problem with one simplistic solution. You know, you take the economy, um, the environment, these huge problems, and you bring it down to one simple solution. Carbon pollution. That's the problem with the environment. So... Then you add into the recipe, you throw in a little uh, created enemy so that you're relieved of the responsibility for the problem. Well, I drive a hybrid, so it's not my problem. It's these gas-guzzling SUVs that are the problem. That's, that's where it is. It's not me. I do my thing. I got my little Chevy Volt. Plug it in. We're good. I don't contribute to that. Well, here's the problem of us versus them. The line of good and evil runs right down the center of every one of us. The line of good and evil is in us and in our enemies. So you can't oversimplify with an us versus them, good versus evil. Martin Luther said, Simul justus et peccator. It's Latin. 
We're both saint and sinner simultaneously. None of us are all good. None of us are all bad. Sin is an equal opportunity employer. 1 John 1, 8-9 says, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves, and we're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. So, being both good and evil, sinner and saint, how do we reconcile our ideologies and our faith? How do these two opposing forces collide and come together? And how do we live faith-filled people in an ideological society? First of all, get wisdom. Sounds easy enough, right? If we go to Proverbs, verses 4, 5 through 9, the Bible says, Get wisdom, develop good judgment, don't forget my words or turn away from them. Don't turn your back on wisdom, for she will protect you. Love her, and she will guard you. Getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do, and whatever else you do, develop good judgment. If you prize wisdom, she'll make you great. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will place a lovely wreath on your head and will present you with a beautiful crown. You see, wisdom is the, un- is the ability to understand the complexity of an issue and not just jumping in to a simple solution. Another thing is let the entire Bible interpret for the entire Bible. Don't cherry-pick your verses. Because if you say, well, the Bible says that the poor will always be with us, so I don't have to worry about dealing with the poor because they're always going to be here. Why bother? You're then negating every other and ignoring every other verse in here that talks about feeding the poor. Clothing the poor. Caring for the elderly and the poor. How can you pick out one and negate the others? You can't, because then you turn into a hypocrite. So, let the entirety of the Bible interpret for the entirety of the Bible. Another way is before you start pontificating, or sounding off on the solution to all these world problems, take responsibility for your own life and get your own house in order. We all know the whole glass houses. People in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? Why is that? Here's what the Bible says. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Ouch. I don't like that. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, hey, let me help you get that speck out, when you can't see past that log that's sitting in yours? You hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's. This morning at the the pre-prayer, Bill had a great 
physical analogy. I'm all about the physical analogies. When you have a cataract, you have something in your vision. You have that log in your vision, right? You can't see past it. It's a blind spot. But you have that surgery, and you take that cataract out, and you've got a clearer path, right? You're now able to see things you weren't able to see before because that block has been taken out. I apologize. Really bad analogy of what he said, but it's the nuts and bolts. So what does getting your own house in order look like? Make your bed. Clean your room. Don't blame others for your problems. The whole saints and sinners things, we're all saints and sinners, so if I don't have a clean room, there you go. Stop blaming others for your problems. Have humility intellectually. Don't believe you're the smartest person in the room. Take care of your family, especially children, the older, and the disabled. Straighten up your own life. Find something productive to do and commit to it. Once you've done these things for yourself, then you can pick out a small problem socially in your community that you can try to help before blaming those in D.C. and Sacramento for the issues. Try to be a part of the solution instead of the problem, right? It's only then that you'll have credibility to tackle bigger issues and that your opinion about bigger issues will matter. The most important thing for us to remember is that our opinions don't mean anything. They don't matter. I'm a huge Friends fan, and one of my favorite lines is, it's a moo point. It doesn't matter. It's like a cow's opinion. It's moo. Your opinions are moo points. Nobody cares. The only opinion we should ever care about is the opinion of God, the one who wrote and inspired the writings of his teachings, right? That's the only opinion that matters to us. Should be the only opinion that matters to us. Last I checked, there's only one Alpha and Omega. There's only one person who knows the answer to all the world's problems, and that's God. So, my other slide's not there. Okay, well, we'll move on. Christians don't have a reputation of being very accepting and loving towards others that don't believe or follow what we believe, right? Can we all agree on that? How many times do the yellow sign guys show up? I tried to Google a picture of yellow sign guys because we all know what I'm talking about when I say that, right? Damn to hell and the guys, any event you go to, even Christian events, are standing there with their big yellow signs and making you feel about this big, even though you're already saved. You're like, oh, I didn't get right with God again. Um, those are the people that are the loudest voice for us Christians, right? Or at least they're the voice that people hear because they're the biggest hypocrites. Nothing gets me fired up and irritated more than those people. Nothing. You can be whatever sinner you want to be. Because I'm a sinner too, so who am I to judge you? I'm nobody. But when you have people that have not experienced the love of Christ, 
and who God is as a father, a loving father, mind you. That's the image you see of his followers. And I'm not that person, and that person doesn't speak for me, but they're the loudest voice that gets heard. Real talk. So I have a soft spot in my heart for people who live in a homosexual, that's their life. You know, I'm not going to say you're right. I'm not going to say you're wrong. Only God knows your heart, and he's the only one whose opinion matters. So I'm just going to do what I was told by Jesus. The greatest of all is to love your neighbor, right? That's all I'm going to worry about. Right and wrong, not my place. My job is to love you and be the hands and feet of Christ through love to show that side of the Father. So I had, when I was working at Petco many years ago, I had a friend, several friends who were gay, and they invited me out to the L.A. Pride Parade. Because why not? It's like their holiday. It's their thing. Sure. I love you. I'll support you. I'm not going to judge you, right? So after the parade goes down, you walk down the parade route to the festival. I didn't know what to expect. It's not my thing. Um, and as we're walking down, we come to a street. The streets are all blocked off. And there's this group of Christians. And instantly, the hair on my neck stood up, and I was filled with rage and anger. Because there are those people. There's those yellow sign guys damning everyone around me. And me, because they assume everybody there is, you know, living that lifestyle. How dare you? I'm thinking. Who? Last I checked, you're not God. You're his follower. You're not the person that speaks for him. This speaks for him. His words speak for him. You don't speak for him. So all these people, these thousands of people, that's the God that they see. That's the Christian that they see. Telling them how bad they are, how terrible they are. That they don't matter, that they don't this, they don't... I vowed that day to never be that person. Because that's not my God. That's not the Father that I know. It's not the God that I follow. Nor is that the command that Jesus gives me to love my neighbor. I had a really cool picture on here, and unfortunately it's not coming up. But Jesus is sitting with his disciples, as he always did. And we know how not so bright the disciples always were. And he's, it's 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, I should probably just pull out the verse because my sixth grade memory is not going to come to me. I'm impressed I remembered it was 1 John 4, 7 and 8, yeah? Yeah. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God, and anyone that loves is born of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Where was I going? With? Oh, yeah. Picture. Jesus talking to his disciples, saying, if you, I am love. My Father is love. Love one another. And then the other caption on the thing says, but what if they're believed differently than I do? What if they have less money than I do? What if they don't have a home? What if they vote differently than I do? And then it comes back to Jesus, and he said, did I stutter? Love 
your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe part of the problem is none of us really love ourselves. That's a whole nother sermon topic. I'm not going there. We have forgotten as Christians how to love somebody that thinks differently than us. And that is terrible for evangelism. Because you can't bring somebody to a loving God when you're sitting there punching them in their face because of their beliefs. Because they think differently than you. Quit browbeating people. Be the hands and feet of God. What are the three main points to evangelism? Anybody know? Make a friend. Be a friend. And bring a friend to Christ. Yeah. Make a friend, people. Don't judge them. Love them. Do you agree with all of your friends? I don't. I still love them. Because that's my job. Be a friend through whatever. Whatever it is that they're going through, whatever sin it is they're dealing with, that's between them and God. That's their relationship. A, B, C, your way out. You know, that's not for you to be a part of. All you're called to do is to love them. It's okay to see things differently without name-calling and judging. The last two years, three years, whatever, politically, has been so discouraging for me, seeing people that I love and respect being so vile towards other people that don't believe the same way. Christians not acting Christ-like. And it makes me feel like, great, i got to shoulder that burden. i got to stand in the gap. I have to be Jesus because they refuse to be, or they're forgetting to be. Perhaps it's time we stop arguing about right and wrong and start living what we believe. Love your neighbor. Ephesians 5.2 says, Live a life filled with love for others, following the example of Christ, who loved and gave himself as a sacrifice to take away your sins. Walk in light love as Christ first loved you. In everything you do and say, do and say it with love. So, some practicalities for the day. First of all, beware of simple solutions to complex problems. They don't exist. It's never a single solution to big things. Two, don't rely on numbers and statistics. Now, this kind of hurts me to say because numbers, I love. I'm not good with them, but I love them because one and one will always be two, three and three will always be six, and yes, I know there's imaginary numbers and all that other stuff, but that doesn't matter because one and one will always equal two, right? Well, for a period of time when I was working at the Red Cross, I was doing some statistical analysis and stuff, and I got discouraged because I realized 
numbers and data is only as true as the person pushing the calculations. The world can't be understood without numerical facts. But those numerical facts mean nothing unless they're followed by a faithful, nar faithful narrative, meaning the person who's doing the calculating and who's taking this tab and this tab and this tab includes the whole story. We uh, had launched a new learning management system at Red Cross for all the CPR and aquatics and all the different courses we teach, and um, it didn't go well. At one point during the worst part of it, we were getting about 2,800 new trouble tickets in a week and clearing maybe 100. And that went on for about three weeks, and they finally said, whoa, time out. We're gathering people from all over the organization. We're creating task, force, task forces, and you all are going to be pitching in to help clear these. So we have different funnels that things came through, and you know we want to know how many tickets are coming in for each group and who's responsible. And if they come in here, well, they really belong over here, so they got to get rerouted. It was a huge mess. It took four months to get solved and cleaned up, which I found that actually to be very quick. It's expeditious. However, being the person doing the data for everybody, I'd be told, well, you know, that's really not ours. That should go to them. I mean, we're going to take care of it and do it, but that should go to that person over there. So let's move that out of that group. Well, but if we're doing it, it's ours. So, yeah, we can fudge our ticket numbers and our completion rate by moving something that's not ours into another column. But we're the ones doing it, right? I compromised my values for that moment, did what I was told, and I ended up getting laid off anyways. But it was unrelated to that. It was all COVID-related. So numbers and statistics mean nothing without a faithful narrative to follow. Get a toolbox, not just a hammer. Nobody has the glossy-eyed, huh? Look that I had when I saw that. What do I mean by this? So you have your ideology, you have what you, your philosophy on life as a hammer, right? This is what I believe. Well, when your only tool is a hammer, all you're going to see are nails, right? That's all you're going to focus on is the nails. Well, you can't build a house with just a hammer. So instead... If your favorite tool is a hammer, that's fine. But look for people with screwdrivers and pliers and tape measures. That way, you're being filled from other idea fields. And you're not focusing on just the hammer and everything else is worthless. Because my holy hammer will build my righteous home. It's not, not going to happen. Surround yourself with others who don't believe necessarily the same way you do. A, they're going to point out the flaws in your thinking and maybe make you rethink some things. And it'll be help make you a more well-rounded individual. Finally, 
Recognize that a single perspective can limit your wisdom and understanding. What's the one thing we were all told as a kid when you were not listening to your parents? You have two ears and one mouth. Learn to listen more than you're speaking. Listen before you speak. close with Proverbs 4. Go ahead and invite the worship team back up. Proverbs 4 again, this time 10 through 13, says, My child, listen to me and do as I say. Listen, two ears, one mouth. Listen to me and do as I say, and you will have a long, good life. I will teach you wisdom's ways and lead you in straight paths. When you walk, you won't be held back. When you run, you won't stumble. Take hold of my instructions and don't let them go. Guard them, for they are the key to life. Amen. Father God, we want to do the right thing. In our heart of hearts, we want to follow your examples. We want to focus on being love and spreading love. But we're saints and sinners at the same time. Help us every day, every minute of every day, to respond the way you would respond. To not think of ourselves as better than others because we have you. Help us to live your example. If we believe in Christ, we have Christ within us. Help us. Let him take control. Put our faith in the front seat and put our politics and our opinions and our ideologies in the back seat. Give us the courage to focus on you and let your example guide our lives. Amen. I'm sorry, I had to do that. <laughs> Sometimes on this journey, I get lost in my mistakes. What looks to me like weakness is a canvas for your strength. My story isn't over, my story's just begun. Fail, you won't define me, cause that's what my father does. Fail, you won't define me, cause that's what my father does. Ooh, lay your burdens down. Ooh, here in the father's house, 
check your shame at the door Cause it ain't welcome anymore Ooh, You're in the Father's house Arrival's not the end game the journey's where you are You never want it perfect You just wanted my heart And the story isn't over If the story isn't good Failure's never final When the Father's in the room Failure's never final When the Father's in the room Check your shame at the door Cause it ain't welcome anymore Find hope. Love is on the move when the father's in the room. Prison doors fling wide, the dead come to life. Love is on the move when the father's in the room. Miracles take place, the cynical find faith. Love is breaking through. When the Father's in the room Jericho walls are quaking Strongholds now are shaking Love is breaking through When the Father's in the room Love is breaking through When the Father's in the room Ooh. Lay your burdens down Father's house, check your shame at the door, cause it ain't welcome anymore. Ooh, you're in the Father's house, Ooh, lay your burdens down. Ooh, here in the Father's house. Check your shame at the door, cause it ain't welcome anymore. Ooh, you're in the Father's house. Um, as Kim was speaking today, um, the Lord said, you need to anoint these people to go and love up on people. And so Kim and I ran in the back and got our anointing oil. And um, I'm going to have Kim come up front, and we're going to anoint you guys. And from there, you guys can, you know, slowly walk out, go enjoying some snacks outside. Um, but it's really important that um, no matter who we meet on the street, no matter how different 
their lives are, no matter what their thinking is, that we just need to love them. I'm like Kim. I, when I see those people with the signs, it irritates the heck out of me. I had someone argue with me that was a Christian because I wasn't saved. And I'm like, I'm a pastor. I'm saved. I promise you I'm saved. And they argued with me and told me I was going to hell if I didn't repent. And I'm like, I'm going to stop talking to you. You have a blessed day. (laughs) Even though I want to kick them, (laughs) right? Um, But it is so difficult. I, too, have friends that are that are gay, and I love, I adore them. They are some of my dearest friends, and we've had those tough conversations that we do not agree with some stuff. But guess what? We love each other, anyways. And they're friends from Red Cross. I used to work with him, at Red Cross, and he and his husband, and I adore them. But we don't think the same. We don't believe in the same. And that's okay. I'm going to love them. And because I did that, things have happened where his faith in God is just a small mustard seed started because I said I loved him and that God loved him. How much better is if we show God's love and tell people that God God loves them? Because he will love them until they're in heaven. And if they still choose to ignore him, he's going to pursue them until their last breath. And yes, some say no to him even on their last breath. And that breaks my heart. But that's their choice. But I know far too many that in their last breath said yes. Because someone loved them as God loved them. So, didn't expect to say all that, but we want to anoint you, and because we're so heavy on this side, and not white-wise, but just people-wise, you're welcome. (laughs) Break. Some of you on this side can come on this side, so we're a little more evenly distributed. I couldn't get the... So, come up. We're going to anoint you and just kind of do a quick prayer over you. And um, then you guys can go and have a blessed day. Amen? Amen. Okay, come on up. And Jen, you can just fill. Do your thing. <laughs>